No, really, you can't cover the news without talking about the virus named after the beard that shall not be mentioned without triggering us to check another box for sensitive topics on YouTube. But today we're going to start by looking at a specific economic dynamic related to the pandemic, the virus, whatever you want to refer to it as. I think coronaphobia is still the greatest name for the crisis as a whole that we're experiencing. It's a crisis of fear. In terms of what we're experiencing as Americans, it's that. It's it's a lot of that, and that's what makes possible what we might be more tangibly experiencing as a forced unemployment crisis. And we're coming to the point now, it's gone long enough, a lot of Americans who had a little bit of savings or a little bit of financial cushion or were able to borrow money from family members or whatever it was, starting to tap out. A lot of people we've seen in the re-lockdown that we're experiencing right now going back to work, and then jobs are canceled again because of the second wave of lockdowns. Again, the second wave of the forced unemployment crisis would still be a fair way to describe this. But there's another massive calamity, economic collapse, disaster, realignment, ah, correction in some ways coming. I mean, there there are a number of big ones coming. You could look at the dollar perhaps being overextended at this point, the shrinking from international commerce that the global economy is experiencing, not being kind to the dollar in general. Although we have seen there is an uptick in people hoarding cash right now. Uh, I I would assume hoarding gold and silver, I would hope, and Bitcoin as well, other tangible tradable liquid assets. There's the stock market, and that's another huge one that seems a lot more likely to at least go through a massive shift because the fundamentals of the economy have shifted fundamentally, uh, hugely with the forced unemployment crisis and everything around the virus itself. So what does that mean? The stock market, as we know it, propped up by so much immediate relief and other market manipulation through the Federal Reserve System and the banking system and all these other, you know, big manipulations, it's being really propped up by pretty fragile stilts right now. And and eventually those are going to fall when the ground underneath them softens just a little bit more and that gets us back to the fundamentals and where there's another immediate cliff on the horizon is evictions but first we go to the washington post for a little bit more of a bigger fiscal picture here the u.s job market is still in very bad shape just wait until the fiscal time bomb goes off the u.s economy added 4.8 million payroll jobs in June, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported Thursday, 
That's terrific news for those newly hired, but there are at least three reasons for the rest of us to hold off on popping the champagne. First, even with these gains, U.S. payrolls are still deeply in the hole. Second, these official government numbers are based on a snapshot from mid-June and more recent data suggests the recovery is either stalled or deteriorated since then. And third, a major fiscal time bomb is about to detonate. Let's start with the jobs hole. By the way, the the recovery has either stalled or deteriorated since then. That's the, the re-lockdowns have screwed things up further, would be another way of saying that. So you may have a sense that things are still quite bad, given that the unemployment rate remains higher than it ever was during the Great Recession. To help visualize just how far in the red the country is, take a gander at the scariest job chart you'll see all day. It plots the trajectory of job changes in this recession alongside those from previous post-war downturns and subsequent recoveries. So, this is, yeah, where we are now. There is a bit of a V-shape to this one dynamic, as you can see in the chart there at the bottom left. But if the lockdowns go back to where they were, that goes back down. And there's a compounding effect in this chart that isn't really shown here, that the lower things go and the longer they stay there, the more savings are drained, the more businesses shudder, the more fundamental realignments there are. So it's not just the depth of the line, how how we're doing for job losses, and again, a very distorted metric to begin with, seasonally adjusted non-farm payroll, statistical manipulation mechanisms like that. But you think of the area underneath, and if we go, if we have this V now, and then we go back to a normal curve of recovery, and we might not, but I highly doubt that we're going to be able to get to a perfect V. The area underneath the curve is going to be bigger than anything we've experienced, at least in modern American history. And what this really represents, remember, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. This is a realignment, a rebooting, a shutdown and reboot. I mean, here the it's funny now to understand economics, we use computer metaphors, but that's that's really a, a pretty good analogy for what we're talking about here. What we're what we're witnessing is the shutdown and reboot of the economy with further consolidation of power. And as I've discussed numerous times on the show, because I think this is a very important idea: the bifurcation, the splitting of the economy along, you know gray and black market versus white market sectors. This is the only way we beat this thing, is that we really have to grow the black market, the gray market. People doing business under the table. Uh, people you know, getting paid in cash, not paying taxes, doing barter. You know, some things are entirely legal, but at least by the agorist principles articulated by Samuel Edward Conkin III, look it up. Agorism is his, his term that he defines as conducting your economic affairs outside of the purview of government or in such a way that it doesn't materially contribute to the evil of the system. So 
Uh, anything that you can do that results in you paying less in taxes, whether it's legal or illegal, uh, take the, how you choose to interact with the welfare state, take money away from government so that it, it, it cannot uh, use that to hurt other people. Uh, technically, that's not part of agorism, but, uh, you know, being able to, to work outside of that, owning your property if you can, owning owning your home, uh, you know, as, as opposed to paying into the, to the financial system. You know, all these different things that you can do to not be a good little wage slave who just does their part contributing to the war machine and the system of their own oppression and exploitation, right? So, skipping ahead in, in, in this uh, Washington Post article, going down to the, the next article here, put traffic to, or excuse me, the next graph in the article, CJ, Foot traffic to businesses stalling out, changing foot traffic relative to early March. We've covered stories about this, too, based on the Apple data and the, the leveling out here. Maybe it's a little premature to call it, but as the article says right underneath, the trend is similar for real-time measures of small business health, business open, employees working, provided by Homebase, which offers scheduling software to small businesses. Um, so you can see in the next chart, you know, the, a, a generally similar shape for measures of small business health, seven-day moving average. Uh, seated diners from online phone and walk-in reservations, same thing. All right, so, you know, skipping ahead, again in the article, uh, Federal Reserve officials have expressed concern that economic conditions could get much worse with a renewed spike in infections, according to the minutes of a meeting released on Wednesday. The path of the pandemic aside, other major economic risks loom. So when the Federal Reserve says this, you know, renewed, what is a renewed spike in infections? Them letting test kits get out. Oh, yeah, we're not going to restrict test kits. We're going to count all the positive tests, not just the symptomatic ones. And, and, and it's, I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that this is a, a new little twist. They can't really rely on the death toll anymore because we know that there's been so much misattribution of causes of death around this. But, you know, the guy got shot in the head and because he tested positive, it was listed as a, as a virus death. But I, I'm not, I don't like to use quotes for that, but, you know, because I will not say the name of the virus which shall not be named lest YouTube shall be triggered. So when, when the Federal Reserve says this, it's like when the government scares you all into allowing us to screw you more economically, we're going to do it. <laughs> so as the article says now, in particular, a fiscal time bomb is about to detonate actually two separate bombs. Enhanced unemployment benefits are scheduled to expire at the end of July. And Republicans have said that no way, no how will the program be renewed. Some have expressed concerns that the enhanced benefit of flat $600 federal payment on top of state benefits might disincentivize at work because some workers received more in benefits than they earned in wages, but that design could be amended. Yeah, so I, I don't think – there's going to be more money from the Fed. I, I mean, that, that is <laughs> – Pretty safe prediction, right? Whether it comes in the form of individual payments in another round of $1,200, everybody gets a little airdrop of money or unemployment, you know, or some other, you know, widespread small business loan program, but mm, who knows? I don't think 
that's going to be a game changer in this either way. Additionally, I, I mean, that they're just when they do that, it's just kicking the can down the road one way or another. I mean, do they keep it going forever? Is this is this America's ticket to UBI? It could be. Is that where they want us to go, though? I mean, that's how you got to think about this. Do they, is this the eugenicist long-term plan, get us all on the plantation for UBI? And, hey, you know, it's cool. We take care of everybody. But check this here. Here's scary possibility here, but here's the logic that, that, that I see building as, as an idea in society, right? We get everybody onto UBI right now. Hey, $1,200 a month permanently as long as the virus is a thing. Oh, it's kind of a thing at all times. Oh, it's kind of a part of modern life that we have these virus crises. So we're we're going to this $1,200 a month. Oh, but by the way, you know, when your kid is born, you get $1,200 a month. But if you voluntarily sterilize yourself, we don't have to pay for your kid, so we give you the money now. Out of compassion. Right, if you save the rest of your country in its tax burden from having to pay $1,200 a month for all of your kids, we'll make you one of the special people, the unit class. Uh, (laughs) I don't think it's going to go that way. I'm way more optimistic than that. But if you look at, like, their designs, this could be part of a very long-term plan to get everybody towards UBI. And there are a lot of reasons, even without the eugenicism element, because I do think that is that is getting to the edge of out there. But, again, you look at historical precedent, the superclass of humanity has been guilty and capable of much, much more evil than what I'm describing here, as dystopian as that may sound. So, back to the article. Additionally, states and localities are going broke. Thanks to COVID-19, their tax revenue has plummeted and expenses have gone up. Lucy Dedean of the Tax Policy Center estimates that the pandemic will reduce state revenue alone by $200 billion, or about 10% of pre-pandemic projections. Over fiscal 2020 and 21, officials from both blue and red states have pleaded for federal help. Unlike most states and municipalities, after all, the feds don't have to worry about balanced budgets. While there's bipartisan support in Congress for providing state aid, it hasn't happened yet. Republican Senate leaders have said they don't plan to put together the next coronavirus relief bill until the end of July. So where's the next clip? Not even mentioned here. Because this is far scarier and, and far more present. I mean, I guess the, 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 there's a, we could say, I mean, uh, cliffs are, you know, uh, imperfect metaphors for sudden economic downturns, right? How sudden, how down qualifies as a cliff, who's to say? I would say the forced unemployment crisis that, that we just experienced was falling off the cliff. That, this, that, that we're going off a smaller cliff now with the re-lockdowns and more unemployment and hours being cut and businesses going bust. But the end of the savings cliff and the evictions cliff, maybe that's one cliff, right? 
you get to the end of your savings, at the end of your your immediate borrowing capability with family members, and you go, ah, I guess we're out of here. And from CNBC.com, our next story is experts fear the end of eviction moratoriums could plunge thousands of people into homelessness. Eviction moratoriums nationwide are set to expire later this month, potentially thrusting tens of thousands of people into a housing crisis. So it really it wasn't this it wasn't this week. You know, we were we were uh, looking at July first. Hey, rents due, and may, maybe this this is a tremor, right? Maybe what we're experiencing now is, I mean, Jim, are, are you hearing evictions happening? Like uh, it's. It, 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 I, I feel like I'm sort of barely hearing it. It's yeah. not like July 1st. It, it's a lot of people readjusting right now. It's, according to another story I saw this morning, 3 million young Americans moving back in with their parents already. Do you, you count that as an eviction? Technically, you don't. Yeah, technically not. But if you were paying rent for an apartment and you just said, you know what? Sorry, landlord, I'm done. I need my deposit or use my deposit for my last month now, and I'm out of here. Moving back in with my parents. Three that just happened at three million Americans. It's one hundred. Population's about three hundred thirty million right now. So a little less than one hundred, but about one hundred. One in a hundred Americans just said, you know what, I can't afford rent anymore. I'm moving back in with my parents. It's probably another couple percent that have done something similar that weren't counted in that statistic, but moved in with a family member, moved into a guest house, moved into an RV. Uh, we've seen that happening in, in people with people we know. Congress in March passed a federal mandate prohibiting evictions or foreclosures until July 24 in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Are they going to extend that? July 24? Now, the people, that 3 million Americans, that that 1% who just said, I'm going to move in with my parents, they didn't have to. They could have waited, right? They could have waited until July 24. How many people are planning on moving out on July. I mean, you don't have to, if you don't have to worry about this yourself, you don't think about it. I own my land. I own my RV. I own places. I own buildings. I can live in here. I don't have to pay rent. I don't think about it. Same thing with the gym living here as, as, as a guest, right? Like we, you don't, you just don't think about paying rent in this situation. How many people are going, oh crap. July 24th, and then I'm out of here. The three million who left already are the ones who didn't want to take the credit hit of, of being delinquent on another month's rent, probably. The people who are already there. I mean, that's, that's the cliff. That, I, I mean, maybe historically, as if you look at you know, general economic health on some graph, this is, this is the third cliff. There was the big cliff, the unemployment crisis, the second cliff of the second wave of the unemployment crisis, smaller. But now we're coming to the cliff of savings running out and people getting evicted. So 
third bullet point here. But as the deadline quickly approaches, experts warn that unless Congress passes more relief, renters might be forced out on the streets. Now, how many people did that happen for anyway? How many landlords are just like, meh? No, you're not paying rent. You're out of here. What are you going to do? Call the cops? I'm going to force you out. I'm going to call the cops and say you're trespassing. You're not paying rent. What? You're going to stop. Like, in a lot of informal renting situations, right? In the, uh, one of the bottom sections of this article, the title is, A Tsunami of evictions across the country. Homeless service experts are watching for signs that the number of newly homeless will spike once their state's eviction moratorium ends. In New York, the number of single adult men taking themselves into homeless shelters has gone up on four nights in June, a period of time when we would not be hitting new records normally, Simone of the Coalition for the Homeless said. During other years, the single adults count in homeless shelters normally decline during this time. Instead, we're hitting new records for the single adults in shelters, and that's just the shelters run by the Department of Homeless Services. So I think it's unusual to be seeing these trends, and I am anticipating that we are going to continue seeing these trends as protections for people facing eviction expire. Additionally, the Coalition for the Homeless has received an influx of people calling in to ask about shelter access in New York City. Questions that people who are new to the homeless service system might These indicators are among what have prompted nonprofits and advocacy groups to urge the federal government to pass rental assistance laws to prevent the tsunami of evictions. In California, one organization that provides homeless services had to open up seven new shelters since February to respond to the sudden surge of people needing a place to stay. Quote from Joel Roberts, CEO of People Assisting the Homeless in California. We set up probably 600 new beds, 700 new beds, just since COVID started. But homelessness is a gradual process, so indicators like these that point to a potentially rising population of homeless people form just the tip of the iceberg. Someone who gets evicted from their home because they're unable to pay will likely go couch surfing and then call up friends or family to ask if they can stay in their homes. The transition to homelessness is different for each person. It could be a month or so until these people try living out of their cars. But if there's no steady income coming in, a person living in their car might resort to selling it for money. And then that's when their day they start knocking on Pat's door. So it's not all of a sudden that everyone's going to get kicked out of their apartments and they're all ending up on the streets. It's not that quick. But it might be quicker than we have ever seen it in the next few months. And as the story notes, it's worth pointing out, there is an element of racial inequality here. That those towards the lower rungs of the economic ladder were more vulnerable. And yes, statistically, that trends with racial inequality. This is the challenge facing America right now. You've heard it before, that we have more homes that are empty than we have homeless people in the United States. And, you know, when I, when I think about this, you know, I, I, I often think of that quote from Thomas Jefferson 
And, you know, he said that if we allow banks to control the money supply, then we will wake up homeless on the continent our fathers conquered. Well, look what we did. Look what's happened. I've never covered the news like this and thought that I was reading over so much human suffering without talking about actual death by the violence of war. We will wake up homeless on the continent our fathers conquered. Well, hopefully at least we're waking up. Man, I didn't expect that to hit me like that, but damn. This next clip is going to really suck, man. I was getting ready for a really fun Friday show, too. Shit. Screwed it all up, man. That I, I don't know why that hit me so hard. I, I really don't. We got a lot of fun stories to get to today. Got a lot of awesome headlines. But first, we go to Comment Jim Freedom. Today is Open Line Friday. We're going to try to get through a lot of stories in a hurry today uh, and, and take a lot of breaks for calls and comments. So really fast-paced, a lot of short segments. Jim, any hot comments right now? I'm excited to do the uh, fifth caller one today. Uh, Ishmael Yoder was on YouTube. He said, Adam, haven't seen your videos in a while. Good to see you. How the F are we going to get Joe Jorgensen into the debate? Ooh. Well. He's excited. I have a plan that would be perfect if the debates go ahead as planned in person with audiences of uh, civil disobedience, sit-ins, shutdowns, protests around the debate, things like that, but who knows what's going to happen now? I mean, I, you know, I, I you know, I, I should say, I'm skipping ahead. I have one other story here that, that I just, I just wanted to make a, a funny note about, where is it? Where's the one about the nudist colony? <laughs> CJ's probably going to find it sooner than me. He's like, I, I got them all pulled up right here. I think he went to the restroom. Oh, did he? Uh, no, where is it? Uh, uh, here it is. Yeah, from the Wall Street Journal. The title is "You Can Leave Your Mask On." Nudists wear just one item in COVID times. As some clothing optional at some clothing optional destinations, masks aren't optional, presenting issues with tan lines and and logistics. We don't have pockets. <laughs> uh, and it made me think when I saw this story of our national chair. Nick Sarwark saying that if we do a national convention, uh, masks will not be optional. And, uh, you know, I'm okay with that, really. Like, I hate to say fundamentally taking a side. I don't like the way he said it. Uh, He said, if you want to attend the national convention without a mask, you go back to your hotel room and and put your mask on or take your mask off. If you're going to be in the convention hall, you're going to be wearing a mask. we're not going to do distancing, but we're going to do masks. Like we're going to, if anybody has it, we're going to limit their exposure. That's going to, that, that's an appropriate policy for a gathering of a convention style where people are all in a big group in a big room talking amongst each other and having masks 
means that you don't have to be paranoid about that. Maybe you have a signal, like or we have a distancing area that says, you know, if you're in this area, it's strict distancing, everybody's six feet apart. The rest of the hall, it's masked. You know, I don't know. Maybe there's a no-mask area, too, right? And, and, and Nick could have said that a little, little more uh, tactfully as opposed to sounding like a dictator, but I, I'm not going to make a big deal out of his tone. But the immediate joke was, oh, so... If you're going to be at the Libertarian National Convention, you have to wear a mask. The rest of your clothing, still optional, (laughs) as we saw from the infamous James Weeks in Orlando in 2016. But I, for one, I'm, you know, I don't know if if I'm ready to announce this, if I can say for certain, but I don't know, CJ, if you want to come on and and discuss this and let me know your thoughts. Uh, we, We were on... Uh, well, I, Peter Yeeple here was on the call with Mimi Robeson, California State Chair, when I talked about the National Convention last night and some software that they're going to be using to help people be organized as chairs with their delegations remotely. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm pretty confident saying I'm not going at this point. <laughs> you know, 90%. I mean, something I'm open to, like, I'm not ruling it out. Uh, you know, I, I can afford the drive. Uh, it would be a lot of fun, but is it worth the stress for something that's probably going to be awkward and disappointing? Or is it, or is it really cool to be the ones that are there? Like if some if something CJ's going to be going anyway, so at least we'll have eyes on the ground, CJ. You know, uh, can can they dis- can Nick discriminate against my mask? Is my only question. Because this is cloth. This covers my whole face. Anything they no, want. no. Oh, being anonymous there? No, I don't think so. I think so they can't discriminate can. against my mask. So at the end of the day, if he wants us all to wear masks, I've got mine, I'm ready to go, and I have no issues with it. So, uh, uh, Well, I, I think the reality is, regardless of policy, there are going to be a significant number of people there who are going to say, I'm more comfortable interacting with you normally and not thinking about six feet distance and hygiene and everything. And you just wear a mask. So just wear a mask and everybody's going to be more comfortable. Can't we have like a mask only area and a not mask area like you're saying? Like, or where is he saying these masks are mandatory? Because again, I just want to know if he can discriminate against my mask is all I care about. It's not the wearing of a mask that I'm worried about. It's the you have to wear this mask because we said so when we no, say no, no. so. I think, any, I think it's going to be the minimal standard of, like, Anything any fabric covering over your nose and mouth. Because I can't wait to stand in front of Nick Sarwark like this and say, say it to my face. Oh, you know what uh, I'm saying? Well, I think they're going to ask that you wear a name tag and, I mean, oh. identifying. It's, it's going to be interesting, man. Like, libertarians are punks, right? Like. Most of us are have a pretty strong rebellious streak. If you say you got to wear a mask here, how? Many, oh, what's going to happen if I don't? You going to get or you gonna security? Yeah, or else what? <laughs> Let's test the limits. Like people, like that's how libertarians think. Like I wouldn't be doing that if I go. I, I'm going to participate. You'll bend in this the knee to Nicholas Sarwark. That's what you're huh? saying. You'll you would bend the knee to Nicholas Sarwark. No, to the significant majority of the delegates who would be more comfortable with me walking around wearing a mask. I'll take it off on stage or when I'm not immediately around people, I guess. Correct. That's where I agree with you, sir. Uh, But I'm just saying, if you tell me, CJ, this is the area you have to wear a mask, 
this is the mask I'm wearing. It's probably fine. Yeah. Then I don't mind going. I mean, I can't wait I to go to Orlando. I need the break. I would get in trouble for, uh, like, in a couple of stores I've been trying to do. All it sign says when I walk in, face covering required, mask, you know, whatever required. So I took in a mask one time and put it on my forehead. And they, so they, you show me where it says it has to be over my mouth. You bullshit. It says face covering. Here's my face covering. I'm using it. I'm shopping. Of course, they didn't let me. What store was that? Uh, a family dollar in Williams. So did you just put it on and go in? Uh, no. I walked out. I said, fine. You don't want my money then. I took off. I went to no. Subway. Oh, okay. That's what I've been doing to places. And a lot of places, it's funny. Some places, uh, like last night, I stopped at a pilot. And uh, their sign said, face mask required to enter. And I walked in right in front of two DPS officers who walked in without masks, too. We were all three in there with no mask. Walked right past the sign that said, masks required to enter because of the law or in accordance with blah, blah, blah. You know, I was like, cops don't even care, you know. It's so ridiculous. Mm. The uh, Something I was thinking about when you were talking about the homeless population in Phoenix, I noticed... Well, Hold on, hold that thought. I want to, I want to say something about that, dude. I mean, this is this is a really classy thing to tactfully and in good humor go to businesses and say, if you won't let me in without a mask, I'll go somewhere else. Right? I just want to, I just want to point that out that that is a. If this is important, I mean, I would I do that. I mean, I. To me, I would weigh the convenience. I don't know if I care about it enough to make the statement to like get in my car and drive across town, and again go. All right. Yeah, because then you can get there, and their mask required, too, at the next door. Yeah, right. But, you know, I would definitely try. Um, but, no, if it's, I'm trying to think, is there is there a time, like, I mean, for any kind of big corporate store that, that it would sort of be, you want to respect private property, too, if they say, well, the question is, are they willing to enforce it, right? Yeah, yeah. Or is it just some corporate nonsense that they have right. to put up because... It's, uh, you know, corporate policy. Every store has to post this, but they don't tell them how to enforce it. Right, right. So yeah, homelessness I mean, in, in Phoenix? Uh, well, yeah, okay. So the homelessness in Phoenix, as you were talking about that, I was just thinking to myself, I wonder if the state is, like, preparing for that as, like, they're not going to try to fix it so that people don't become homeless. They're trying to prep the world. For more homeless, you know what I'm saying? Like they know that's part of the plan. Because in Phoenix, uh, I don't know if you remember on my YouTube, I took that one video pre-COVID of all the homeless people in downtown Phoenix, and they're all on the sidewalks, and they they're just wherever they want to be. Well, now they've moved them all, and basically they moved them into the parking lots instead of out on the sidewalks. They just moved them into the parking lots, and they're all in organized rows now. They gave them a bunch of porta potties. They gave them security guards that walk around the homeless camps it's like a whole camp now like a community instead of there was just homeless people where exactly in phoenix in downtown phoenix right off of uh just west of 7th ave and uh between washington Jefferson. what is the purpose of the parking lot originally uh i don't know it's just it was just an empty parking lot and maybe hmm. maybe that was a plan all along i don't know mm -hmm. it was just eerie because it was like they, for years, I've been watching the homeless population be where it was, all over the sidewalks, and they do what they do, and what else do you, all the cops keep them away from the main buildings. They keep them in this little section of town. But now, it seems like the state has spent money 
building them a tiny little homeless community sort of thing. And it made me wonder if it's like, are they expecting more? So they're trying to put facilities up so it doesn't blow up in their face. Hmm. You know, they got porta potties and security guards and fencing and it looks all organized now. It's crazy looking. So today we are giving away a membership to the producers club for the best caller. All right. So who wants to call in now, right? We've got a link. It's very easy, very cool system. CJ's got set up with StreamYard and you can be the first caller and the fifth caller. So you still want to, you just want to click the link and get in line. And do, do we have anybody backstage right now queued up, CJ? Not yet. Not yet? Okay. So we're going to put that link into the comments. And uh, whoever's so then we're gonna do another story and come back. Any other comments though you want to uh, you want to get to before we get uh, back well, to the I just wanted to point out for the callers, if you're camera shy, you can still click the link and come into it with your video blocked so that it's just an audio call. If you're camera shy, I always like to add that because people are scared. <laughs> uh, let's move on until we get some. Uh, All right. Callers. Via MSN.com from The Guardian. We're not going anywhere. Seattle's chop zone dismantled. But cause lives on. The occupied protest zone near downtown Seattle, known as the Capitol Hill Organized Protest, or CHOP, effectively came to a swift end early Wednesday morning when officers largely cleared the area of people and encampments, despite some protests lingering overnight into Thursday. Now, activists say the relationships built and lessons learned over the last three weeks in the self-proclaimed police-free zone have already had a lasting impact that will live on past the physical presence of CHOP. As Ray Kern said, who had become head of security at CHOP, we won, we're winning, we made history, look what we did here, the world saw it. But the protest area also became the location of a series of nighttime shootings, which left a 16-year-old boy, a 19-year-old man dead, and several others seriously injured. In a series of tweets Wednesday afternoon, Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin highlighted the violence in the zone, saying the recent public safety threats have been well documented, and this violence demanded action. She said, our conversations over the weekend made it clear that many individuals would not leave, and that we couldn't address these critical public, public safety concerns until they did. The autonomous zone emerged organically following a series of dangerous clashes between protesters and law enforcement during marches against police brutality, sparked by the killing of George Floyd. Officers in Seattle abandoned their East Precinct buildings as demonstrations closed in, after which protesters camped out around it with the intention of protecting the building from possible destruction that might be blamed on them. In the days that followed, hundreds more joined, and suddenly several blocks of the city streets were teeming with people of different ethnicities and socioeconomic backgrounds focused on calling for the defunding of the city's police department, echoing such protest cries emerging coast to coast, which can mean diverting money budgeted for police departments to social and education services, or even dismantling an entire department and restructuring the law enforcement system. And they wanted an end to police brutality against black people. We're going to organize sit-ins. We're going to spam the city officials. We're going to show up, Jesse Livingston said. It was a space where people came to learn. We screened documentaries. We found people's assemblies every day where people had the opportunity to speak and share their feelings and ideas. We put on educational events every single day, she told the Guardian. 
We had a space called the Conversation Cafe where people could come to learn about racism and to talk about it in ways they don't get to do in their daily lives. It's for not only important conversations and learning, but also lasting bonds, which have since resulted in the organizing of anti-racist protests and the creation of social justice groups. So the Seattle Black Collective Voice, today there are about 40 people involved with the collective. Uh, as uh, Jesse said, we would not have been able to come together and engage in the work that we're doing if it had not been for CHOP. Ah, oh, the, the name change. Too bad. Part of the decline. Um, so there's, there's a lot of great legacy and lesson here. There's a lot of, you know, I, I suppose this is it. This is the, this is the post-mortem for Chaz Chop. Uh, declaring an autonomous zone was so much more meaningful and powerful than organized protest. But they did successfully operate as an autonomous zone for a significant period of time. It was a beautiful experiment in defying authority. And I'm not, just to, just to preempt the trolls on this one, I'm not identifying ideologically with any of the leftists. Uh, I'm a voluntarist, libertarian, right center of the nonsense, left-right spectrum really to transcend it to a different realm of ethics applied to politics rather than aesthetics using the force of government to make the world or our country look the way that we want it to. So this is a really exciting thing to celebrate that this happened. You know, I, I, there, I, I'm very confident in saying that there was subterfuge, there was sabotage, there was infiltration of this effort. Just changing the name itself might have been done by some kind of manipulation. Uh, the infiltration just by even activists who had other things in mind. For example, uh, you know, could have been conservatives infiltrating the Antifa element with their faces completely covered going in and getting a little rowdy. Yeah, maybe, maybe there's some of that. Maybe there's just... You know, people of, of, of different competing lefty factions and the, and the lack of being united with a clear purpose or mandate or just a, a charter for this thing from the beginning that signed on that was associated with its creation, making it perhaps more deliberate and thoughtful as opposed to spontaneous. <clears throat> it might have made it a lot more sustainable. And uh, I suppose at this point, it's clear I have to concede that, that I was wrong about the sustain, I predicted that this was going to go at least a few more months, more like Zakati Park with Occupy Wall Street. Uh, I thought that uh, you know Jeff Dice and I, you know, were on the same page about that. Now we were wrong. Eh, happened, but uh, still want to celebrate this and say good for the people who made it happen and for paving the way for a lot more defiance of authority and, and shaking up. Uh, our presumptions about the system that we live with today. Any more comments? We have any callers? Yeah, caller. All right, let's go to the line. Let's go to the phone lines. Let's go to the stream yard. Let's go to the streamers, the stream lines. Who do we have with us? What's up? I'm Chris. Hey, welcome to the show, Chris. Where are you calling from? Denver, Colorado. How's the weather there? Uh, it's uh, actually hot and beautiful. Right on, right on. Same here. So what's on your mind today, Chris? 
Um, Not much, just uh, kind of witnessing all this take place. And, uh, you know, I'm glad to see that Chaz and the CHOP movement's actually uh, put it, you know, somebody's putting a stop to it finally. Uh, yeah. I, was looking, I was looking forward to seeing, uh, I had heard rumor that the Angels and the Mongols were going to step in and uh, let them have it as of tomorrow. But it uh, looks like that's not going to happen. On which side? You know, would the, would the motorcycle gangs be defending this thing and fighting the police or no, fighting with the police? Dismantling the protesters. Why? Why wouldn't? They, why would they be fighting on the side of the police? Uh, I would imagine they don't. They don't want big government any more than anybody else does. Well, the police are now. We have big government. Right. No, I understand. They're probably one of the biggest gangs in the United States. But uh, the point of the uh, the Bongos or the Angels stepping in is dismantling the, you know, just the fact that these guys think they're going to come in. I would imagine there's Angels in Seattle too that don't really care to have a new gang in town. <laughs> Just for the instability. Oh, man, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah hard to say. Well, what was your take? Do you think that, do you think that uh, it was it was in, illegitimate from the beginning? Uh, the whole movement, I think, is illegitimate. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's all done off false pretenses. Which, when you say the whole movement, you mean Chas Chop or BLM or some well, other? The, I guess the uh, the facets behind the movement, the BLM, the Antifa, uh, you know, they're, they're actually going in. And uh, I read reports where they were sodomizing individuals because they weren't paying uh, reparations or protection money. I guess there's a, a new group of trans, transgenders called queens, and uh, they were actually sodomizing husbands in front of their wives and children if they didn't pay them reparations and, and protection money. In the Chaz? In, yeah. Of the, no of the, way. Uh, no way. Side. Yeah. Credible report. Okay, what's, what's the, cite, cite your sources on that one. I can't off the top of my head. I'd have to look it up. I got it off the dark web. But, uh, All right, well, if, I, if that's true, like, I want to I want to know this. That seems a little out there. If you want if, if you can find that, send us the link in a comment. And, and I'll cover it during the show today. Yeah, um, I'd be happy to because I, I, I thought it was kind of outrageous at first, too, but I don't know. I've seen crazier stuff, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm with you on the idea that, that you know, while, while BLM has, you know, a, a lot of legitimacy to its call and its cause, and even Antifa in some – well, no, I can't even say that about Antifa, but that these movements are fundamentally – manufactured right that these are not like legitimate grassroots there's there's a grassroots that's being co-opted in the case of blm but it's being manipulated and misdirected to serve the needs of of the super class the string pullers right right well the thing that strikes me the the most funny about any of that is they become exactly what they were fighting against you know suddenly they have an unelected dictator right they're they're segregating their own neighborhoods and and before, if you were carrying a rifle and had ammo on or camo on, you were called a white supremacist, uh, you know, cosplay, whatever. And, and now these guys are doing the same thing. But I see these guys dressed up like, like Power Rangers going around trying to provide security and whatnot. And for them to say that that jeep that came in there and, and got all shot up, for a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old to try to, like, dismantle, chop, chaz, whatever it is, and then get executed – but they said that they were firing on them. It's it's all farce. 
Do I still want to celebrate that even these invalid movements in a spontaneous moment did something really exciting in declaring their independence? I mean, you you got do you see no value in that at all? Oh, absolutely. I just you know, and it, I guess in words, how do I put it? Um, shit, I don't know. Uh, I'm at, I'm at a loss for words. Well, I mean, I, would you say that that you hope that? I mean, I I just hope that this this gets what I mean. If nothing else, there's something that is to me undeniably positive about this is that by a small group of people, for whatever reason, under any circumstances, saying we're going to be autonomous, and by mostly nonviolent means, right? I mean, not non-forceful, but they didn't they didn't shoot any cops to get the cops to leave, right? right. You know, there was threats of all sorts of stuff, but it happened with less violence than the American Revolution, and they successfully maintain that autonomy for a brief period of time and made global headlines they got millions if not billions of people thinking hmm maybe we should declare our independence here yeah but at the same time they declared independence but they still are going to require that you know some of the staples that that we all you know take for granted like an ambulance or you know EMTs the police you know the uh, your your fire people, your, your, fire, your firefighters, you know, they, they, I don't know, to me it seems like they're a bunch of uh, little screaming brats that uh, always got the their uh, trophy for showing up, but never <laughs> necessarily for taking it to the, to the lead. And yeah, there's, there's an element of that. Even, the, when, the, even when, when the brats do something beautiful and positive, I'm still going to praise that one beautiful positive and, you know, thing about that. Yeah, and I could, I can see that, but I don't know. I, I, I kind of disagree on their whole, you know, pretense and how they went about it. Right. Well, the only reason I would see this as a bad thing is if it somehow, like, discredited the idea of declaring your independence. Like, when we do this uh, tomorrow, and I, I we really should be promoting this more. I should have been thinking ahead. Tomorrow, and, you know, although this might just be a short broadcast tomorrow, uh, at noon Pacific, I'm going to sit down here and we are going to lay out the intent uh, to declare our independence uh, a year from tomorrow for Gardenia, the Garden of Freedom, and declare the sovereignty of this land and negotiate it in, in a proper, respectful, peaceful way and make sure that we have good excuse me, relations with our, uh, our surrounding nation of the United States and that, that we have dual citizenship programs. So People who are citizens of Gardenia still get to be fully participating citizens of the United States, and that we have, uh, you know, negotiations with emergency services so that they're, they they know that if there's an emergency here on my 10-acre homestead, they can still land a, a you know helicopter for an emergency medical evacuation, and know that they have uh, pre-approval for crossing this international line under these circumstances, and will not face any sanctions, you know, and I already have a sign on the gate that says, you know, government officials are not welcome except when called in case of emergency. Right. You know, we would just negotiate that in, in proper terms. It says this is, you are now crossing an international border. You are coming into a sovereign territory of Gardenia. And I think that's, 
am I going to be like, are people going to go, oh, Adam's doing his own little jazz chop thing. <laughs> How dare you declare your independence when the idea is totally invalid and America should rejoin the, the, the empire of Great Britain. No, you know, I don't think anybody's going to say that. Well, so. Yeah, but declaring independence and what these guys were declaring, I think, are totally, you know, two separate things. You know, it would okay. be one thing if these guys were actually in there saying, hey, you know, we want to be sovereign citizens of our own nation and pull apart from the United States. I back that 100%, but that's not okay. what they were doing. I, I think there was a subtext of that, an element of that, maybe not as not as much as you would want, as I would want to see, like, clearly right. articulated. But when we do it in Gardenia, we're going to be doing it right. So tomorrow at noon... I'm just I'm I'm, I'm just gonna pop. I'll probably just do it as a Facebook Live. No, you know what? I'll probably pre-record it. I'm just gonna pre-record a little message. Um, you know, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna slap our logo and intro on it. And uh, or, you know, maybe no, you know what? I'll I'll make a new overlay that has the flag of Gardenia and the logo of the Garden of Freedom. Um, yeah, so just be careful not to use anything that would classify as you know white supremacy here. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not. Yeah, so that's the thing. Well, that maybe that's a nice thing. See, now we have we've had crazy right wingers doing declare your independence stuff, and then we've had crazy. Now we've got crazy left wingers. So at least there's balance. See, now this is a good thing too with Chess Chop. Now I can declare independence here without just being associated with automatically with, like, one end of the, the, the political spectrum, right? Right. All right, well, thanks point. for the call. What's that? Yeah, anytime, brother. I said good time. All right. Thanks for the call, Per se. If you want to call back in to be caller number five, we'd love to have you join us if uh, when, when we get to that. The Yeeples might be calling in, hopefully, like, right about now on the hour, um, if they're ready. Jim, if you don't mind texting them, tell them I'm going to call. I'm going to do one more story. Then we'll get the Yeeples on. As callers number two and three, and so if anybody's queued up right now, they could be four and five, perhaps. Right? Yeah. We're gonna do one more story. There's a big international headline from JPost.com, the Jerusalem Post. What took place at the Iranian Natanz nuclear facility? The incident is the third mysterious explosion in a week, and has led to many questions. The plot thickened on Thursday afternoon, hours after a building at a nuclear facility looked to have blown up in Iran. Reports of an explosive device planted and an early warning, as well as a dissident group taking responsibility, now adds to questions and concerns about what happened at the sensitive site. The building, affected by some kind of explosion, is located at the Natanz Nuclear Enrichment Facility. Iran had alerted the world to the incident in the morning of July 2nd and even took state media for a tour to show that while there had been some kind of incident, the nuclear facility was not in danger. It is the third mysterious explosion in a week and has led to many questions. <laughs> now, explosions like this don't just happen. Certainly not in the Middle East. Uh, accident, highly unlikely, right? The New York Times reported that a Middle Eastern intelligence official said the blast was caused by an explosive device planted inside the facility. The explosion, he said, destroyed much of the above-ground parts of it. This is important because it was allegedly the above-ground portion of a larger area where new centrifuges are balanced before they are put into operations. Iran is known for building underground facilities that obscure or protect their activities, including at missile and nuclear sites. 
It now looks increasingly like the incident was deliberate, an attack or act of sabotage. Adding to the question of how this happened, a group called the Homeland Panthers claimed responsibility, according to emails allegedly sent to BBC Persian. The emails arrived hours before any news of the incident had emerged. This is about 2 in the morning, July 2nd, and I don't know what's going to be coming out, out of this story, uh, but certainly one we're going to be following, worth keeping up, uh, heads up. There's still a, and, and coming from the Jerusalem Post, how trustworthy is this news source? Who's to say? But there's definitely something happening with explosions at Iran nuclear facilities. We're going to be following up on that story in the next week or two as we see more development. Jim, do we have the Yeeples ready to call in? They are clicking the link as we speak. While we wait on them, I can read uh, Jeremy Gooding's comment. Please. watching live from Patreon. All right. And commenting live on Patreon. I had to see it on my phone, though, because it still doesn't aggregate into the main. But anyways, uh, Jeremy Gooding, weighing the convenience of wearing a mask into a store is understandable, but at the same time, I feel like I'm fanning the flames. The more the believers see other masks, it emboldens what they already see as the truth. Ah, that's a very, very good point. Very good point. Is that we want to... What what are we supposed to do, you know? Yeah, we don't want to reinforce the fear. Right. Um, so wearing a mask to be respectful. So, so I think I think the point here is still be ready to wear a mask and wear it as little as you can conveniently, comfortably, and with good humor get away with. Because if you get confrontational, then you're then you're definitely having a, a greater effect of reinforcing the fear and the conflict, right? If you make someone but if someone is like, hey, in our store, we have a lot, like, hey, we have a lot of elderly people, right, at our store. It's a private business. It's a small, it's not a major corporate thing. It's a mom and pop thing. We have a lot of elderly people here. We'd really appreciate it if, if, if you wear a mask in our store. And if you don't, we're going to ask you to leave, and we're going to follow you around. We're going to warn other customers, and we're going to ask you to leave. And if we have to, you know, we'll, you know, we'll get you in and out quickly. We'll call, like, yeah, then wear a mask, you know, or go, or go to a different store in that situation. But, yeah, I, I, that's a really good point to say you don't want to be reinforcing the fear. By the way, I got to say, uh, we have three new patrons from just the last 24 hours to say thank you to. So for Tommy, new $10 patron, thank you so much for joining us. For Encouraged Choice, $5. And Jeremy Gooding, you just reminded me with that, uh, another $10 patron who gets to join the producers club for just $10 a month, you know, and, and just quick question here on the mechanics of this. Maybe we'll save this for the after show to really get into it today, but for the patron tiers, maybe we should just drop the $5 to $1, right? And make that the exclusive content and live video privilege group, right? Because we can't separate the live show from clips that we want to post, like behind-the-scenes uh, construction, homesteading, gardenia, fun stuff footage, right? If you have access, you have access. 
No, I can. You can, I can separate. Have, you can. can you can give people yeah, access by tiers. Okay. Only the ten dollar. Okay. Get well, five dollars. Okay, so we're gonna keep it that way. So we're just gonna add. So then, in um, I mean, really, we should do that this weekend. Just go ahead and add the one dollar tier. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you get a one dollar. Well, I think we call it the the live view. I would come up, maybe come up with a term for people who just want to watch the live show. Just want to you know clear that minimal hurdle to get into our uh, censorship free zone where we get to smoke B O N G S's instead or B O N G's instead of uh, water pipes. And we get to say the F word instead of frick so that we don't trigger the YouTube censors. And I don't, I don't curse a lot, but I do appreciate the censorship free space there. All right. Are the Eagles ready to join us? Give me two minutes. Two minutes. All right. Um, well, should we take another caller then? Or I guess, cause the next two stories I got, all right. I'll, co- I'll cover, uh, we'll do a quick one here. As soon as there, this is just a fun one. I wanted, to, to, to touch on and examine, this is the uh, BBC.com story, CJ, how the black death made the rich richer. Uh, I, I wasn't planning on reading the entire story because this is a, a pretty significant historical uh, examination. And, uh, of course, the link will be in the notes for people who want to get into it. But just as with any crisis, this is, a, this is a really cool concept to examine right now because I feel like uh, I've, I've had to keep, even my brother, I had a great little text conversation with my brother and he he was like, okay, so people are exaggerating the COVID statistics. Why would they do that? What's their motivation? I was like, oh my god, really, really? Have you not been like watching my show? Have you come on, bro? Like, have you not been? This is this is Andrew, our uh, mental health professional in Washington State. You know, like, have you not been even just even the mainstream headlines? You just think about it. Well, the federal like even if you want to be optimistic, like even if you want to give government as much benefit of the doubt as possible, nine trillion dollars just got moved and created, yeah. right? Like nine, and it's more than that. I, I keep using that figure, and that's I know that's outdated. It's yeah, probably like twelve trillion dollars now they've moved around coronavirus. I don't know. Someone please fact check me on that. Someone want to in the audience take that on? Find out how much has been spent as extra government spending around the coronavirus. And if you, even if you want to just be optimistic, like when the government moves $9 trillion, how much of that is going to get lost, stolen, you know, it's enough that would motivate someone to try to manipulate the coronavirus statistics, right? But the reality that we know from the history of government is that the majority of that money is going to corrupt ends one way or another. So uh, this article from BBC.com is by Eleanor Russell from the University of Cambridge and Martin Pecker from the University of Bristol. When a third of Europe's population was lost, wealth concentrated into tiny groups, could COVID-19 trigger something similar? So this really, I, I, I mean, this is so beautiful. Just, yeah, let's learn from history for one. And what happened then might be looked at historically as the birth of the modern superclass. A third of the people died. Anyway, we'll get into it. In June, uh, by the way, this article originally appeared on The Conversation and is republished under a Creative Commons license. In June 1348, people in England began reporting mysterious symptoms. They started off as 
mild and vague headaches, aches, and nausea. This was followed by painful black lumps or buboes growing in the armpits and groin, which gave the disease its name, bubonic plague. The last stage was a high fever and then death. Originating in Central Asia, Asia, soldiers and caravans had brought the bubonic plague. Yersinia pestis, a bacterium carried on fleas that lived on rats, to ports on the Black Sea. The highly commercialized world of the Mediterranean ensured the plague's swift transfer on merchant ships to Italy and then across Europe. The Black Death killed between a third and a half of the population of Europe and the Near East. This huge number of deaths was accompanied by general economic devastation, with a third of the workforce dead. The crops could not be harvested, and communities fell apart. One in ten villages in England and in Tuscany and other regions were lost and never refounded. Houses fell into the ground and were covered by grass and earth, leaving only the church behind. If you ever see a church or chapel all alone in a field, you are probably looking at the last remains of one of Europe's lost villages. The traumatic experience of the Black Death, which killed perhaps 80% of those who caught it, drove many people to write in an attempt to make sense of what they had lived through. In Aberdeen, John of Fordham, a Scottish chronicler, recorded that, quote, This sickness befell people everywhere, but especially the middling and lower classes, rarely the great. It generated such horror that children did not dare visit their dying parents, nor parents their children, but fled for fear of contagion as if from leprosy or a serpent. These lines could almost have been written today, except that today the mortality of this thing is nowhere near the bubonic plague, obviously. I wonder if psychologically the bubonic plague has been a template for every plague since then, and this is what we look to. The, you know, and, and maybe the bubonic plague was the first, uh, they're probably predecessors, but maybe the first major one in uh, where we had a good historical picture of what happened. Although the death rate from COVID-19 is far lower than that of the Black Death, the economic fallout has been severe due to the globalized, highly integrated nature of modern economies. Add to this our highly mobile, mobile populations today in coronavirus, unlike the plague, has spread across the globe in a matter of months, not years. So to the Black Death, the sudden loss of at least a third of Europe's population didn't lead to an even redistribution of wealth for everyone else. Instead, people responded to the devastation by people keeping money within the family. Wills became highly specific, and wealthy businessmen in particular went to great lengths to ensure that their patrimony was no longer divided up after death, replacing the previous tendency to leave a third of all their resources to charity. <clears throat> their descendants benefited from a continued concentration of capital into a smaller and smaller number of hands. And now we are in, as the article says, the age of Amazon. And here are the similarities. Certain large organizations have stepped up to the opportunities provided by COVID-19 in many countries across the world. Entire ecologies of small restaurants, pubs, and shops have suddenly been closed down. The market for food, general retail, and entertainment has gone online, and cash has pretty much disappeared. So I've talked about this, you've heard, in the, in the store, or excuse me, in, this, in, in the uh, consolidation of economic activity to corporations, to those who are allowed to continue to do business at the expense of small businesses. Same general trend that, that we saw then. I mean, it's just... The parallels are uh, 
shockingly unsurprising, right? And, you know, I hope we can learn from this and, and you know, resist it in some way or at least be more economically conscious. conscious. Uh, the last section of the article here, um, or sorry, the couple more sections of the article here, uh, popular resistance, the return to return to the black death, the growth in wealth and influence of merchants and big business seriously aggravating existing anti-mercantile sentiment. Medieval thought, both intellectual and popular, held that trade was morally suspect and that merchants, especially wealthy ones, were prone to avarice. The Black Death was widely interpreted as punishment from God for Europe's sinfulness, and many post-plague writers blamed the church, governments, and wealthy companies for Christendom's moral decline. And then, is small always beautiful? Um... By the 1960s, the idea that there was some fundamental difference between small and large forms of business added environmentalism to these long-standing arguments. The man in his skyscraper was opposed to the more authentic artisan. Yep, got to take on the man. After coronavirus, the last section of the story here, the long-term result of the Black Death was the strengthening of the power of big business and the state. The same processes are happening much more rapidly during the coronavirus lockdown. Finally, the Black Death and COVID-19 seem to have caused concentration and centralization of business and state power. That is interesting to note, but the biggest question is whether these boom forces can be aimed at the crisis to come. All right, do we have the Yeeples ready to the join us? Let's get them on screen. They're plugging in their microphones right now. All right, are they, and they are calling, are they in Flagstaff running errands? Uh, I believe they went to Chino or Preston. Oh, okay. They went south instead of east. Yeah. Oh, what happened to their video? No, we lost them. Oh, they yeah. just—I was watching them in the thing. They were putting in headphones, and she went like this to plug them in. So I don't know if that—that that did it. Disconnected. Ah, uh, maybe Streamyard didn't like she it. She went like this to plug in the headphones, and then the screen went black. So. <laughs> uh, 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 all right. We'll get okay, back. All right. There we go. All, all right. right. Hey, hey, ladies and gentlemen, pastors Peter and Helen Yeeble joining us from where? Where did you go today? We're uh, right in, now. We're in Chino. Yeah, yeah, okay. we're in Chino right now, and it, it we put the headphones in because it actually rained like a it's, lot. It's actually so raining right now. Yeah, <laughs> it's rain. It's it's totally clear here. I can't uh, yeah, even see like clouds from the south. Maybe, maybe. Well, because normally the wind comes south to north, or maybe we'll get some some nice weather. It, it, yeah, it, 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 it was nice to cool us off. It was definitely nice to cool you off. Oh yeah, for sure. Be very appreciate here. I sent you guys the list. I I put my home stores Flagstaff Home Depot, but I'm sure the stuff I'm getting it's very stocked. They'll have anyway. So they're they're out running errands for the garden here. But we wanted to give you guys a chance, especially today. To, to talk, talk about your YouTube channel and getting to a thousand viewers. Yeah. So, well, we are only um, I don't know eight away. Yeah, maybe about eight now. away. Yeah, we we're pounding them in. So it's 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 happening. Um, and I but, thank everybody that has subscribed thus far. And but that's uh, just the one channel we have. Yes. We're gonna have a couple. There's a couple other channels, obviously. That well, we so hold on. Before about. we, I gotta stop. Before we get any further. Okay, we have the link. All oh, right. While this interview is happening, we are going to get you, get to watch you pass 1,000 subs. And the significance of this is this allows you to go on YouTube Live and reach people in a new venue with your message. Yeah. So 
Can we get CJ? Can you please make sure that link is in the comments a few times? We'll get. We're gonna get everybody who is watching live right now trying to be your one thousandth sub and push you over the edge. Hey, so and you know, fun. This. whoever is the one thousandth will get a fifteen hundred milligram. CBD isolate sublingual drop made by made by Mother Nature's Den. There we go. So it's our very own product. And you'll receive the first bottle you'll of manufacturing. You'll receive the first product. So yeah. there you go. Yep. All right. Beautiful, beautiful. So t- tell us about what you're going to be doing with the YouTube channel, though, and why it's significant to get to a, a thousand subscribers. Well, again, like you said, it's it's about being able to reach a, a broader audience. Can we talk for two? has always been based on education. And it will continue to do that. Um, education is key. It's the foundation of bringing the cannabis plant to the end of prohibition. Um, and uh, and teaching to live a healthy, holistic lifestyle. That's, that's right. what we truly teach every day uh, is about holism. Grab that with the other hand because my thumb is shaking. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that, that, that's what we teach. We teach holism. We teach freedom, too. I mean, can we talk 420? And it's a small O, not a 420 because... Cannabis is within the name, can you know, uh, Canna We Talk. We didn't want to be redundant, but the 420 is like, uh, like kind of symbolizes and mimics H2O for water. So it's organic. It, we try to stay as organic with our message as we can. And that's what we do every day, man. And that's what Canna We Talk is all about. But we do have other YouTube pages. Uh, we have the voluntary option, as you know, Adam, which is all geared toward politics libertarian. and libertarian politics mm-hmm. and uh, localization. So um, that's uh, that's our next YouTube channel that we are going to build up to a thousand, mm-hmm. and then we also have Helen's List of Kids, which is all about holism and how to replace uh, Western medicine with Mother Nature. As you're walking around and finding things right in front of your face that you so can again, use. So again, it's 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 all about uh, teachings. So uh, anything else you guys? Anything else you guys want to plug about your productions before I, I ask about your experience today? Well, the only thing I want to plug about it is the fact that uh, uh, watch us as we grow. I mean, as we grow at the Garden of Freedom and then at Mother Nature's Den, because, listen, it's the same principle and ideas. We believe in freedom. We believe in being as independent as we can. We believe in helping in community. And and there's, it's an actual way to thrive, people. It's not to survive. It's to thrive. We live very good together, man. And it's all what it's about. So if we could teach more people this, and then we could teach them that let's be less government-reliant. We don't need them to do things for us. Mom and Dad raised us till we're 18. We don't need them the rest of our life as well. That's right. All right, so you guys are in Chino right now. Um, what stops have you made so far? Burger King. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, it. Okay, so yeah, maybe, maybe you could check in with us for the after show. Uh, in about an hour, and and we'll get an update on what shopping is like. I assume you did a drive through at Burger King. Well, no, we no. actually went in. There is a sign on the door that says, you know, Burger King mandates anybody to walk through the door to wear a mask while inside. But they're not enforcing it. The the and employees the beauty are of it is it. not everybody is conforming. Right. That's what well, I love. there was one person out of eight in there that had a mask on, and you know, and the but the employees do have them on. So, uh, yeah, no, that's yeah. different. You know, for an employee, it's not. It's sort of like you're in food service. A lot of people right. wear, you know, protective stuff anyway. Of a course. mask is not out of the norm 
right. what you would hope your you know someone's standing over your food to, right. to be wearing you know anything. Right. So uh, well that's you know and, and you know it's funny we got a new Burger King. This is brand new. Like when last time I drove through uh, through Chino Valley, the Burger King was still under construction. And oh, I was yeah, like, I, I love Burger King. Burger King is like my one mainstream food. I will admit it. Okay, no, that's true. I have eaten um, years and for seven years. And then, and then sometimes there's Taco Bell. But no, they, no, they yeah. have the Impossible <laughs> Patty. They have the Impossible uh, Whopper. And yeah. they're, that vegan patty, or it's not vegan, but it's vegetarian, the veggie patty. Uh, the way they do it at Burger King, oh my gosh, it's better than me. It's better than me, and I I love that my impossible. I might this is gonna get me off the property now. I'm gonna be like, all right, I'm just gonna <laughs> come back with with Burger King wrapper. Would you like me to bring one back for you? Oh wow, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, we're, we're, okay, yeah. We'll get in on our all right, I'll, we'll I'll, I'll, I'll text, I'll we'll text you. Yeah, all right, I'll text you uh, when because are you guys you guys have to go. Down to Prescott, right? Prescott, for, and then we're coming back. Yeah. Okay. All right. So yeah, if, if you're just doing that and a couple other stops and coming back, I think I think I can wait for a, a feast of a lunch here <laughs> from Chino Valley. Forty there minutes go. cold burger. I don't know. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll do it. I'll do it. All right. Uh, <clears throat> all right. So yeah, if you guys want to check back in with us in an hour, if there's anything interesting, at least give Jim a text uh, when we're doing the post show and. And uh, maybe maybe yeah. there'll be some interesting updates on on shopping in northern Arizona. And hey, mm-hmm. we did it! Can we talk for two zero? Thousand plus. Us. What's the Thank actual you. number now? I can't read it. I, I I'm blind. Where it are we at? Oh, it just says one k. All right, so we hit it. There you go, one k. Congratulations! All right. Oh, so, so excited to get this chair up. Next- Go ahead. Who is it? Is it hello? Where are you? Let's yeah. look it up. One. Just announced the name of the thousandth <laughs> subscriber. Oh, they're gone. All we right. We have another device that's connected, or it says your guy, your guest will need to connect their. Oh, he has his microphone and audio connected. There's someone in the backstage, but they're not audio or video connected. So they're just if present. They can hear me. Yeah, you need to activate your microphone at least. All right, so. Let's do, let's do one more story. That was callers number two and three. And so we are looking for caller number five today to win a membership in the Anniversary of the Man Producers Club. Our next story from the New York Post. Powerful men are scared about what Ghislaine Maxwell will say. Fun follow-up to our Jeffrey Epstein story from yesterday, as well as another one we've got here about Prince Andrew in particular. But to the New York Post, Jeffrey Epstein's victims have another shot at justice. Here's hoping they get it. Ghislaine Maxwell, the alleged child sex trafficker and abuser in league with Epstein, was finally arrested Thursday morning. Her guilt in the court of public opinion isn't in question. The only question is, will the federal government keep Maxwell alive to stand trial? There's good reason conspiracy theories still swirl around Epstein's suicide nearly one year ago in a downtown federal prison, a prison, by the way, that safely housed Bernie Madoff, the 1993 World Trade Center bomber, El Chapo, and the terrorist who told the New York Times it was tougher than Guantanamo Bay, and he would know because he's been held in both. 
it stands to reason that the federal government should be able to contain the socialites. At the time of his death, Epstein was likely the most high-value prisoner in federal custody. He had ties to incredibly powerful men who had everything to lose if they were exposed. He was that most vile of criminals, a pedophile, a child molester, a rapist, and a sex trafficker. Maxwell is the last chance these victims have at justice. Epstein's suicide was just another brutal victimization. The federal government, if only out of its own self-interest, cannot let a prisoner cannot let a prison suicide uh, or sui- suicide in quotes, depending on what you believe, happen again. Now, did uh, we know that Epstein didn't kill himself? Like one way, like, and if he did actually physically kill himself, that there was some other manipulation involved. That he didn't choose to kill himself, but I'm I'm much more inclined to believe that they that they put in a body double. I mean, I know that's that's the the, the more that's the less plausible theory of the two remaining. I mean, the two other theories he got he was killed, or they, they he got snuck out one way or another, right? And him getting killed is sort of less complicated, right? They're less stretches of, of plausibility in that theory that, you know, that snuck someone in, you know, uh, faked the day or they, they, they choked him, made it look like a hangout because there was a broken bone in his neck that showed, you know, basically proved, right? And this is really sloppy suiciding work here, Mrs. Clinton. Like, really, that, that you, you know, and by the way, I, I, and now I have to put out my disclaimer. I am not now, nor have I ever been suicidal. Uh, you know, but that she didn't get the coroner in on this and, and to just bury that part. They, they let it be known that there was a broken bone in his neck. I mean, maybe, again, this is they wanted that to get out somehow. They, they're sending a message. Look, we can do this and still get a, make it obvious and still get away with it. I'm not like I'm not saying he definitely got snuck out. I'm just saying I'm, I'm more inclined to believe that theory now than he was killed in jail because of everything that has happened around it. But why did it take a year for them to arrest Maxwell? Right? What? They, they had, there's like no new evidence, no new revelations, maybe some new testimony. I don't know, but they could have arrested her a year ago. They, they certainly had. I mean, as the government. You know, ability to to charge someone with something to get them locked up so they're not out. They could have done that. Now she, she's obviously not like a threat. As long as she's out doing what she was doing since the since Epstein died or whatever happened to him. Um. So here the article goes on. Maxwell must be treated as she is, as high value as Epstein, as dangerous and sneaky, kept under the strictest twenty four seven suicide watch. Here's a detail that should make prosecutors and prison guards nervous. In the recent Netflix documentary, Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich, a survivor stands outside Epstein's Manhattan townhouse and points to pockmarks in the edifice. Such pockmarks, she says, were all over the interior. The, every, the entire house, every room, every bed, every bathroom, chair, and toilet was rigged with cameras and audio. Epstein kept a secret room full of monitors and watched his guests in real time. He blackmailed the powerful men who would visit and use his girls. If Maxwell dies in custody, the federal government will take a hit from which 
it may never recover. This is, well, I mean, that, w- that would be a good thing, right? If it was, uh, if, but, but, you know, the, the, it's not going that way. I, I mean, let's not be so optimistic. They're not going to screw things up so bad around this that everyone's going to go, oh, really? <laughs> Adam's right. The federal government protects pedophiles and is a bracket that doesn't <laughs> exist and is holding back humanity. <laughs> totally discredited because of what they did with Elaine Maxwell. No, obviously, like, that, that, that'd be a nice fantasy. Um, but, you know, more interestingly, from this other story, we get some specifics on Prince Andrew from The Mirror. Jeffrey Epstein, victim's lawyer, orders Prince Andrew to speak out as she blasts torture tests. High-profile U.S. attorney Gloria Allred is, presenting, is representing many of Jeffrey Epstein's victims, and she's gone public with calls for Prince Andrew to lift the lid on what he knows. A lawyer representing several of Jeffrey Epstein's victims has urged Prince Andrew to tell U.S. authorities what he knows following Ghislaine Maxwell's arrest. Famed U.S. Attorney Gloria Allred appeared on Good Morning Britain today following the detention of the Royals' longtime friend Maxwell in the U.S. yesterday. Allred insisted the Duke of York is subjecting those who suffered at Epstein's hands to a torture test by not speaking candidly about his friendship with the convicted pedophile. She said, the question is, Prince Andrew, when is he going to tell what he knows? He needs to do that. He needs to do it without delay. It is so traumatizing and difficult for the victims not to know the truth. And if this kind of, and this kind of torture test that Prince Andrew is subjecting the victims to, like, will he or won't he give a statement if he will when? More excuses, more delays. It really is painful for many of the victims. It's just not fair. And wow, this is, uh, Attorney Gloria Allred again doing a, an amazing job as a attorney in the court of public opinion, taking advantage of the platform. She's she's uh, you know really good whether you like her or not. Uh, she's you know and, and some of the causes I you know I think she's taken on legally I, I certainly wouldn't support. Uh, if, if this is if this one is what it seems though, this is certainly entirely righteous and good for her for taking this case and going after it with this vigor. And and using every means available, uh, including the the court of public opinion, to pressure Prince Andrew into making a statement. This might be, uh, you know, the the, the thread of the sweater uh, un- unraveling, perhaps. Maybe that's optimistic. But you see, what's happening here is that before this, for for Prince Andrew and the victims, it was like, well, yeah, when is he going to say anything? But they didn't have any leverage. Now that Maxwell has been arrested, now that there has been the clearance for them to sue the estate, $500 million approximately uh, valued estate of Jeffrey Epstein himself, there's a whole other legal cause in the United States that allows an attorney like like Gloria Allred to play this particular legal point and say, we need to subpoena him, he needs to testify, it's relevant to this immediate legal case to determine whether or not these, these young women have, uh, or formerly young women, depending on when they were involved. Uh, you know, whether they, they have this case uh, against the estate and what this might do. And, 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 you know, we saw from, uh, you know, from, from Prince Andrew some pretty careless handling and, and statements on, on this PR-wise. Uh, this might be a moment for him to put his foot in his mouth in a way that incriminates him and others. You know, who knows where this goes? 
Back to the story, Prince Andrew has also faced claims he's failed to cooperate with U.S. prosecutors through the course of the investigation, but he's insisted officials at America's Department of Justice have turned down his offers of help. Yeah, right. Andrew previously said in a statement, quote, I continue to unequivocally regret my ill-judged association with Jeffrey Epstein. Of course, I am willing to help any appropriate law enforcement agency with their investigations if required. Lawyers for the Royal later added the Duke of York has on at least three occasions this year offered his assistance as a witness to the Department of Justice. Oh, and a funny uh, footnote to the article from The Mirror. To find out which pubs, hairdressers, leisure activities, and other businesses are open again near you, enter your details below. And if you want your business's details added, sign up here for free. Yeah, talking about the lockdowns without even mentioning them. All right, CJ, do we have another caller queued up here? Um, Jim just stepped out, or um, I'll let him say why. Uh, CJ, do we have we have anybody queued up backstage? All right, is the CJ coming on or a guest? No, just CJ. No audio. Just to let everybody know, uh, I put the link in two callers to go, two clickers to go. Just uh, and it is in now in the description of the Facebook video. So if you're watching on Facebook and you're like, I, I can't click the link, if you back out, you can click the link. See it that way. If you're on YouTube, it's uh, as well. You should be able to click it from there as well. Just make sure you got at least a microphone on, and you'll be good to go. Yeah, and when you click the link, you'll be able to, you'll be watching the show through that link. You'll see it exactly as I see it right here on my screen in Streamyard, and it'll say I'll have a little box with you. I'm I'm off screen here, also up in the corner. There's like I'm seeing two of me do this. It's really funny. Like when. All right, now I'm just, like, geeking out myself on visual stuff that no one can see. And in an audio podcast, no one would have a chance to see it anyway. All right, so I've got two cool environmental stories that go together here. First, from environmentalprogress.org. On behalf of environmentalists, I apologize for the climate scare. On behalf of environmentalists everywhere, I would like to apologize, formally apologize, or the climate scare we created over the last 30 years. Climate change is happening. It's just not the end of the world. It's not even our most serious environmental problem. I'm already like, whoa, okay, let's see where this is going. I may seem like a strange person to be saying all of this. I've been a climate activist for 20 years, an environmentalist for 30, but as, energy, as an energy expert asked by Congress to provide objective expert testimony and invited by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to serve as expert reviewer of its next assessment report, I feel an obligation to apologize for how badly we environmentalists have misled the public. Great credentials here. Here are some facts few people know. we got to get this list on screen. Humans are not causing a sixth mass extinction. The Amazon is not the lungs of the world. Climate change is not making natural disasters worse. Fires have declined 25% around the world since 2003. The amount of land we use for meat, humankind's biggest use of land, 
has declined by an area nearly as large as Alaska. The buildup of wood fuel and more houses near forests, not climate change, explain why there are more and more dangerous fires in Australia and California. If you remember, we covered on the show the brush fires in Australia earlier this year and the general charity hoax that was around it. And it was easy to point out, looking at the history of these brush fires, that this was not even a big one or a bad one by recent historical standards. And you you saw all these celebrities jumping on the bandwagon, just like with climate change, just like with all this other stuff, where the scarier the threat, uh, the more noble you are for coming out in the cause in protecting the environment. So back to the list. I mean, I could say more about about all of this stuff. You know, fires decline 25. Okay, the, the, the amount of land we use for meat. You know, that is huge just because we're becoming more efficient primarily. It's not that less meat is being eaten, which in some cases it is, but which would be better if it was more of that for efficiency and, and ethics and a lot of other reasons. But even without that, just the efficiency in production. So anyway, back to the list. Carbon emissions are declining in most rich nations and have been declining in Britain, Germany, and France since the mid-1970s. Netherlands became rich, not Four while adapting to life below sea level. We produce 25% more food than we need, and food surpluses will continue to rise as the world gets hotter. So, I mean, about this, like, why do we have starvation? Why do we have, like, homelessness in the United States? You're just an example of natural resources not meet, or in this case, constructed resources not meeting up with human needs, right? We have more homeless people than empty homes in America. Why? Because the Federal Reserve System, because Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, government lending, government-sponsored banking, everything else, all the corruption and zoning, building goes, and financing that grows up around the housing industry. The same thing with food. We are, as a species, capable of feeding everybody on Earth. We are already producing 25% more food than we need. Why do people go hungry? Artificially created shortages made by government. Habitat loss and the direct killing of wild animals are bigger threats to species than climate change. Wood fuel is far worse for people and wildlife than fossil fuels. Preventing future pandemics requires more, not less, industrial agriculture. I know that the above facts will sound like climate denialism to many people, but that just shows the power of climate alarmism. In reality, the above facts come from the best available scientific studies, including those conducted or accepted by the IPCC, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, FAO, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, IUCN, and other leading scientific bodies, Some people will, when they read this, imagine that I'm some right-wing anti-environmentalist. I'm not at 17. I lived in Nicaragua to show solidarity with the Sandinista Sandinista Socialist Revolution. At 23, I raised money for Guatemalan women's cooperatives. In my early 20s, I lived in the semi-Amazon doing research with small farmers fighting land invasion. At 26, I helped expose poor conditions at Nike factories in Asia. I became an environmentalist at 16 when I threw a fundraiser for Rainforest Action Network. 
At 27, I helped save the last unprotected ancient redwoods in California in my 30s. I advocated renewables and successfully helped persuade the Obama administration to invest $90 billion into them. Over the last few years, I helped save enough nuclear plants from being replaced by fossil fuels to prevent a sharp increase in emissions. This is, by the way, uh, you know, a, a really great, you know, laying out of the credentials. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, from Michael Schellenberger. You can look him up and, and see this. He says uh, that he's writing a book to really capture this and make sure that uh, the, the, the full case is made. As he says, until last year, I mostly avoided speaking out against the climate scare. Partly that's because I was embarrassed. After all, I am as guilty as alarmism as any other environmentalist. For years, I referred to climate change as an existential threat to human civilization and called it a crisis. But mostly, I was scared. I was afraid of losing friends and funding. Um, anyway, going ahead, though, so he, he has a list of things that he's going to be covering in the book. Factories and modern farming are the keys to human liberation and environmental progress. The most important thing for saving the environment is producing more food, particularly meat, on less land. Now, again, as, as a consumer choice vegan, I, I disagree with the premise here that we need to eat meat, but I, he is correct in terms of, uh, from my understanding, in terms of as long as we maintain our current diet, then, yes, if we produce more feed, especially uh, more food, especially meat, on less land. We get more efficient with these processes. I mean, the way that, again, this is government screwing this up, right, with subsidization of certain elements of the food producing, uh, food production industry, uh, cattle grazing land, the way that those uh, natural resources are, are managed, the way that subsidies go by species, like for the cattle industry, for, you know, uh, specific types of meat, for chicken, for pigs as opposed to finding all the other ways that, that producing meat through rabbits, which produce the most amount of uh, meat per calorie ingested as any feed animal. Like this is, uh, or the, you know, just all of it. And that's just one example. Maybe more things with eggs to get animal protein more efficiently, more effectively, to put nutrients back in our eggs and getting out of the factory farming where, you know, you have these, like, like with so much else in food production, uh, crops and, 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 and meat that looks good but has been uh, leached of a significant portion of its nutrients, right? So making that more efficient, getting government out of food production is going to be huge. The most important thing for reducing air pollution and carbon emissions is moving from wood to coal to petroleum to natural gas to uranium. I, I agree in principle. Um, you know, here we burn wood because it's here, it's naturally available. I think there, there are some caveats to this with localization and, and building on site and homesteading where uh, using local sources and materials for energy is, is more important. Um, and, 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 and there's one thing that I think he missed here, uh, wind and geothermal and solar. Um, I mean, you, you want to get, you know, uh, away from that. Uh, he, he points out here 100% renewables, as, as I, cause I think this is where things go. And I think there's going to be a leap in technology coming where we're going to be able to, you know, with um, one of the things that we're lacking really is, is the engineering and incentive and distribution for technology that we already have, right? There's a better way that we can do wind turbines that are safer, that are more sustainable. We can do them locally uh, with solar connected to houses, just solar technology improving, being able to have that energy. 
Um, I think with wind and turbines, there's there are ways to, to get water locally out of the air that just haven't been put. I mean, you see a lot of these technologies just out there, not quite developed because they're competing with major government subsidized industries where the, the natural economic incentive to shift to more efficient high tech, you know, renewables in electricity and energy in general just isn't there. With geothermal, it's all you need is the machine. Right, we don't have, and, and to be able to, to bore, to be able to, and, and here, like, for us, for, it's the, the, like, with current well drilling technology, it doesn't make sense for us to drill a well and have our own source of water on, in, in, on, on this land in Gardenia, which is really unfortunate that we'd have to do so much rock. It would be about $40,000 to build a well here, which would be great. You know, if we had that kind of abundance, we, we might get a well and, and in the long run, you know, pay for itself with water. But, um, for rain collection, we should be able to meet our needs if we if we set have everything on the property set up and we do it carefully. You know, we should be able to to meet all of our water and plant and and, and growing needs with with rain collection. You know, keeping my fingers crossed on on what we're able to do with that. But geothermal, you got to be able to drill a really deep hole and have a device in there that moves water and steam through it in a way that generates energy just by taking advantage of the temperature. Uh, difference between at, you know at, at ground level and and into the earth. So I don't think getting you know uranium certainly represents something you know way more productive and when it's done right way safer. But um, yeah, getting to getting where government is out of the way of the energy industry entirely, it is slowing us down so much by subsidizing the oil and gas industry today and even the automotive industry with uh, subsidizing the infrastructure. Like, why should government build the roads instead of having that cost internalized to the people who use them and the industries that profit from them? That would create appropriate settings for the incentives for competition that would get us away from the entire primary transportation paradigm today of an internal combustion engine spinning four rubber wheels down a paved road burning fossil fuels uh, in the process. So as he points out, 100% renewables would require increasing the land used for energy from today's 0.5% to 50%. Um, I, I'm a little suspicious of that, but uh, I get his point. I think this assumes that there isn't going to be greater uh, technological development. Increasing the land from 5% to 50% might be a solar panel on every roof, and you're not really using more land to, to switch to renewables on that. So uh, we should want cities, farms, and power plants to have higher, not lower power densities. Yes, he's talking about scales of efficiency. And uh, vegetarianism reduces one's emissions by less than 4%. Yeah, so if you're doing it for that reason, you're doing it for the wrong reason. This is another cool historical thing he points out here. Greenpeace didn't save the whales. Switching from whale oil to petroleum and palm oil did. Free-range beef would require 20 times more land and produce 300% more emissions. Greenpeace dogmatism worsened forest defragmentation of the Amazon. The colonialist approach to guerrilla conservation in the Congo produced a backlash that may have resulted in the killing of 250 elements. Surprise, surprise, unintended consequences. Why were we all so misled in the final three chapters of Apocalypse Never? I exposed the financial, political, and ideological motivations. Once you realize just how badly misinformed we have been, often by people with plainly unsavory or unhealthy motivations, it is not hard to feel duped. So, to sum it up at the end, he says, 
that is all I hope for in writing it. You've, if you've made it this far, I hope you'll agree that it's perhaps not as strange as it seems that a lifelong environmentalist, progressive, and climate activist felt the need to speak out against alarmism. I further hope that you'll accept my apology. Related to the story, we go to the Good News Network. Americans say they're becoming more environmentally conscious each year, and their green changes are contagious. So as a libertarian, you know, one of the reasons that I, I mean, the main reason I'm a libertarian is because it's, it's ethics apply to politics. I, I believe in ethics. I believe in doing the right thing and understanding when is it okay to use force against people and when isn't it. One of my, you know, our main motivation in, in, in looking at these problems in the first place that lead me to libertarianism is wanting to make the world a better place. And making it better for people, of course, comes first. Now, making it better for the environment is critical to making it better for people. And a lot of libertarians kind of, uh, you know, underestimate uh, the significance of the relevance of libertarianism to environmentalism when it comes to just maximizing value for humanity. Even if you're the, the capitalist, hardcore kind of libertarian and you want to increase the bottom line, well, we want to maximize the value of the environment. And that's a luxury that comes with being able to provide food, water, clothing, shelter, or, you know, basic human needs first and then using the environment as, and then we go, okay, we got that covered. You know, because when you're worried about, hey, am I going to be able to feed my kids? You're not worried about, hey, are the the lead pellets in my shotgun poisoning birds, you know, generations from now. No, that's a luxury that, that you know, you, once you have those needs met, you get to be more environmentally conscious. And, and there is a true, you know, green revolution driven mostly by the left and they're fear-mongering still. But as we saw from that letter uh, from Michael, that there is a, a, a shift to more reasoned environmentalism without the alarmism. So here it is from goodnewsnetwork.org. In a bid to be more environmentally conscious, 85% of Americans surveyed have made at least one positive change in their lifestyle in the past year. The great news is that a growing interest in becoming more eco-aware is a movement that's contagious. Half of those polled say they've influenced somebody else to be more environmentally conscious, with the average respondent saying they've swayed three of their friends. While the average American has made at least three positive changes in the last year, 41% of those polled so say They've made even more than that, according to a new survey of 2,000 adults. Four in ten of those polled reported making an environmentally conscious decision at least once a week. And nearly one in three said they do so daily. And environmental awareness appears to grow with time and age. So this is really exciting. When you see all of these dynamics combining, it really represents a huge positive shift for humanity. An evolutionary leap, if you will to a more conscientious species. Now, in this article, I'll also list the top 10 lifestyle changes Americans have made in the past year. Number one, not wasting food. How about that? Number two, turning off electronics when I'm not using them. That's 42%. Uh, purchasing food that is sustainably raised or produced, 37%. Recycling more, 34%. Cutting down on plastic use, 31%. Buying products with traceability labeling, 27%. Reducing water usage in my own, 25%. Using eco-friendly products, 25%. Composting, 24%. Fixing broken items instead of throwing them away, 
You know, it's funny that these are things that we didn't do, really, when you look back at it. You know, when I think about this, it's like, you know, what, how we, you know, are living more conscientiously at the Garden of Freedom. We, we really do all of these things. You know, not, not I mean, are we superfood conscious, you know, and sparing every little bit about not wasting? I mean, no, because if you're composting, right, you know, you're using that anyway. But we were generally not wasteful here. Uh, we we are electronic conscious because we have uh, you know specific limited capacity that we've established in a sustainable means with solar uh, purchasing food that is sustainably raised or produced check uh, recycling more well do we recycle more words you know we're we're upcycling all of our waste here uh, into construction materials cutting down on plastic use again it's like if you're composting you don't care about wasting food as much. Um, when you're upcycling your plastic bottles, but uh, generally, like, I what is you guys see what this is? This is this is like if I wanted a big jug of pla- you know a plastic jug to drink water out of and wanted something like well, Jim, what's yours? You have you, you have it with you? Oh, Jim has a big fancy black yeah, bottle that's steel, stainless steel yeah. and insulated, right? And there's a decent amount of material. Like I, the amount of material that went into that, how many of these could you make with this tiny thin wall plastic? Probably 20 of these. 30, What's the weight of your empty bottle versus the weight of an empty gallon jug of plastic, right? Probably 20, 30 times. Yeah. And it's metal. So, you know, if I go, and, and I, if I had, I've had those and I've broken them or lost them or you took the thing. So I'd rather go with this. So this is my way of, inv- and, and if I, when, when I'm done with it, if it gets too dirty, I put it in my pile and it gets upcycled eventually. Uh, there are tons of uses for these in construction with fun projects, homesteading. And, um, so do I? So I do. I do. I cut down on my plastic use. It's kind of just a general habit, uh, and then upcycling and, and saving everything. Buying products with traceability labeling. Uh barely. I'm not really that. I don't buy that much, so I'm not that conscientious of that. But if that's important to you, right? Um, if I have the option, I'm, I'm you know going to buy something that's made with recycled materials. If it's the same price as something that doesn't say it, so yeah. Like, is that what they mean by traceability labeling? I like my stainless steel because I've heard it filters the water. The stainless steel absorbs shit out of the water? I don't really. It filters the water. Just by being in a container, not just by a being filter. in a stainless steel. Stainless steel draws impurities out of the water in it. When I when I empty the container, there is like a residue on the side. So the residue, so the you want out. a surface of the residue because it's got, it's a brush textured surface that minerals will bond to as something well there's a minor effect there all right um reducing water use well i guess traceability is more about where where things are sourced in general like where did your food come from um not just the the container but reducing water usage in my home yeah we're very conscious here off-grid using eco-friendly products yeah when there's an option composting we do that fixing broken items instead of throwing them away oh yeah you kind of have to out here all right, so that was a really fun environmental segment. We've only got a few minutes left in the, in the show today. Uh, we're going to go to your calls and comments for the rest of the show, but just a, a couple quick headlines from NBCMiami.com, South Florida man charged in Miami Beach elevator shove, but attorney says it was COVID protection. Um, Nakam Gross, 72, is of an elderly person. 
This is really interesting. Yeah. Do you, do you have, a, if this is the assumption, man, this really challenges a lot of stuff. Interesting little uh, libertarian ethics thing to ponder. If someone, you know, if you're coming into an elevator, really the, you've kind of consented to whatever is the standard right there with the elevator. But if you're, if you're imagining you're in public, um, do you have the, like, if so, like right now, today, if someone got, you know, we generally accept if someone got right in your face, you have the right to shove them. You have the right to physically remove them from, you know, your personal, or you're feeling their breath on you. The, the, the assault, it's an assault on you physically, barely, but it's an invasion of what we consider your personal space. So could you, you, you could shove, uh, it's better to step away if you can, right? You step, I mean, first, you know, oh, does it justify violating the non-aggression principle? Generally not by itself, unless they're like cornering you, right? Before you shove someone, you have to make an effort to step away. If they continue to stay in your space and not step away, yes, you can shove them. And that's, I think, justified by the non-aggression principle and libertarian ethic. But now what if it's the, the new norm is if you stand within six feet of someone without wearing a mask, you are ex- potentially exposing them to a virus. But they don't, you don't have a right to do that to them either because you might, they might be a, 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 someone who is guaranteed to not be a carrier, right? They might be someone who's recovered tested for antibodies and can't be a threat to anyone. So anyway, another fun story from Wired.com. Behind bars but still posting on TikTok, TikTok, excuse me, the lives of incarcerated people are usually hidden from society on prison TikTok. They are going viral. In Kevin Smith's most popular TikTok video, he shows off a makeshift water heater he built in prison. Narrating over Eminem's song Godzilla, Smith explains how he diverted an electrical wire from a light fixture to a metal bucket hung from a hook on the wall before I made it to work release. This is how I made hot water. The captain reads the video is tagged, hashtag prison life. So just fun. I, I had a cell phone when I was in jail briefly. We did not have TikTok at the time. Um, another interesting development in the election, more voters rule out Trump than Biden. Statistically, so more than half of the nation's electorate say they have ruled out voting for Donald Trump in November, while four in ten say the same about Joe Biden. Biden currently holds a 12-point lead in the presidential race, according to the latest Monmouth University poll. Biden holds a significant advantage among the one in five voters who do not have a favorable opinion of either candidate. If we can just get these numbers up to 100%, they can all rule out voting for either one of them. I mean, maybe, maybe this is the libertarian strategy. Just pile on whatever negativity campaign is working. Because these numbers are not just liberals decide they refuse to vote for Trump under any circumstances. Conservatives decide they re- There's crossover here. There's uh, significant people in both of these bases who are like, nope, not going to do this. Uh, one other story we've got to cover at least briefly. Activists prepare to storm D.C. and Independence Day weekend protests from the Washington Examiner. Uh, activists in those high profile of these events plan to protest the Emancipation Memorial in Lincoln Park. The memorial, which leaders of the local collective, the Freedom Neighborhood, claimed they would topple last week, has become a subject of national interest, with many people making a case both for and against the statue. So just pointing this out, if you're in the Washington, D.C. area or can get to Washington this weekend, it might be a fun time to take part in or witness and cover or just Get back to us. Get some exclusive footage for Anna versus the man about what's happening in D.C. this weekend. We're definitely going to be covering that next week. And I think that's all of our critical headlines. We've got some fun stuff we're going to get into in the patron-only after show. But let's see if we can get callers number four and five 
to take us home today in the last five minutes of the main official broadcast of Adam vs. the Man before we go patron only. We have anybody backstage? Uh, nobody quite yet. There's been two people that came and left, though. Gray State was one of them who actually just commented, and I like his comment because he says, I'm voting for the Kokesh Jim Freedom ticket. <laughs> All right, well, hey, we you could be seeing that in 2024. I have yet to uh, even think about a running mate for 24. Yeah. Uh, things are certainly going to change a lot between now and then one way or another, but for those who know my commitment to uh, to this race to dissolve the federal government, I, I am simply suspending my campaign for the period of the general election to support Joe Jorgensen. As uh, soon as that's over, uh, we go right back at it. I mean, I don't, whether we go active officially, we'll probably wait to to announce until you know until a more strategic time, probably late 23. Man, it's kind of cool to be able to plan your life out in, in such a long timeline here. Although you know, it's not as long as the trees. I want to water the trees on my property, you know, for decades before they get and and. Uh, all right, we'll geek out about the trees in the after show. Nobody wants to call in today, really? Can we get that link? Pump that link in the uh, in all of our little comment sections here. So, anybody, you want to click this link if you're watching live? Really appreciate. It. Did anybody get that statistic for me? What was the statistic I was I was looking for how earlier? How much money the government has spent? Yes, how much money has the government spent? I as a result of seeing all kinds of different. I mean, really, you like were looking to? You couldn't find it. I was. It's like they're. Yeah, but there's got to be some watchdog group who just, like, added up a handful of the big numbers and said this much has been spent due to corona. Uh, government spending COVID-19, that's all I search. That should bring it up. How much has... But all the, the numbers US I can see and make me think, oh, that's bull crap, more than that. Government spent due to corona... Virus. This has to get us something. Nope. All right, wait. CNBC has. Here's everything the federal go- the government has done to limit the economic destruction of coronavirus. That's a pretty propaganda heavy title. Uh, but this might have a spending total. This is from. This is back from March. Jeez, no. Nope. Yeah, that was the other thing. I was looking for stuff. This is from April. Here's one three days ago. Yeah, is no one really keeping track? Pandemic debt. This or is from are they suppressing the people that are keeping track because they don't want it to be too. I mean, they can't. I don't know. I should never say the state can't. Uh, Let's see. Here's the. Well, okay. The USA.gov. It's probably on the government website. Um, I'll look at that one. Government, this is from USA.gov slash coronavirus. Government response to coronavirus, COVID-19, top U.S. government websites for information. <clears throat> Guidelines for opening up America again, stimulus updates. What is the federal government doing? Health and safety. Huge list. Look at all we're doing. Money and taxes. Yeah, it's probably not going to say spending on this one. Scams and fraud. Benefits and grants. Yeah, but this isn't, yeah, 
This doesn't look like it's going to have the total of all the spending. This is really disappointing. Yeah. But we know, I mean, I, I keep, like I said, I keep using that $9 trillion figure because it was two and then two and a half and then it was three, then another three, then another two and a half or something. And then, yeah. you know, a lot of other little chunks like that. Uh, I see one from May, coronavirus in the economy, how the Fed is printing dollars. <clears throat> Let's see, sort by date, maybe. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, I'm really shocked about this. <coughs> Federal funding disparity. Frustrating. I don't know. I can't find it. Well, maybe we'll find it. I might find it. I'll keep looking while we're on our... Uh... In the post, yeah, I guess this is the after show challenge. No, uh, no other callers today. Well, they're calling no good comments. People that came in, but then they they must not have had signal or something. All right, that's too bad. All right, well, we'll do the same thing next Friday. Same bat time, same bat channel. So, since we only had uh, Blaylock and Helen and Peter, uh, I guess our first call, we'll give it to caller number one today. Caller number one. Yeah, that was a good call with Chris. I appreciate that. Helen and Peter, aren't they already in the producer's club? No, they're not in that group. Oh, we should have them. All right. So, well, with that being said, we're for those of you who aren't able to join us on the patron-only broadcast we're about to do, uh, have a good weekend. I'll talk to you tomorrow. You'll You'll see me with our Gardenia Sovereignty announcement video. And um, thanks for joining us. We're going to be covering what's going on in Washington, D.C. on Monday. And I hope you guys remember the significance of uh, the, the opener today, that this is the national crisis that we are facing now more than anything else. The cliff that is on the horizon is the, the end of savings and the, uh, the eviction crisis cliff. Uh, even if the government keeps the moratorium going, the last-minute emergency measure. Things are going to get ugly. Uh, I think. I think. We're, I think the, the shape of this is that we're going to start to see this decline, and then July first, you're going to see, or sorry, uh, August first, rather, because it's July 24. The moratorium runs out. If it's allowed to run out, that's going to be the start of a major tumble. It's going to be really tough for a lot of people. But keep a smile on your face. There are plenty of reasons to be happy. Oh, we have our we have another caller. All right, who is this? Calling with a mask. Johnny. Ah, hey, John Luke. Yeah, you Adam. Excellent. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from beautiful Lakeland, Florida. Is there a mask requirement? Where exactly are you standing right now? I am in a guard shack at my work. <laughs> oh. Oh, you've got, you've got your wage slave muzzle on then, huh? Yes, I do. It's also, yesterday, my city mandated masks 
at 5 p.m. After uh, two, week, two weeks ago, they voted on it, but the, the mayor put up a motion, and it died because it didn't get a second. And in the two weeks' time, there was so much backlash because the motion died without even a second because they were scared of, I guess, re-election or something. They were just like, oh, no, now we're going to mandate masks because there was so much public outcry. And I've wrote a series of press release as the chair of the Libertarian Party of Polk County against it. And also, too, I've helped create basically a web-based aggregate with my friend Christopher that basically someone could go to this website. It's called, like, Support Lakeland and kind of see what businesses require masks for entry, if they have hand sanitizer, they offer masks, et cetera, rather than, you know, at the barrel of a gun, you could make your own choice whether to shop somewhere or not. And I thought that was a, a great idea. The city thought it was an okay idea, but then they got scared. <laughs> so, Don Luke, I've, I think I've seen you at the last three Libertarian Party of Florida State conventions that I attended. And I, I apologize, I didn't remember that you were also the chair of, of Polk County, but you've always been involved with the party one way or another. And uh, I think we should, we, can we schedule you as a guest for next week? Can we get you on at our, at our mid-show time slot and, and get you on for like 20, 30 minutes to talk about what's going on in Florida? And, uh, I mean, maybe specifically with the national convention right now, uh, sort of maybe to some degree happening in Orlando next weekend. Yeah, it may or may not happen in Orlando. I don't, I'm not entirely sure at this point. <laughs> well, obviously, so we, myself being 30 minutes away from Orlando, uh, it was, you know, a lot better than driving to Texas. <laughs> oh, yeah. Either course. way, I'm, I'm indifferent towards whether it gets canceled or not or the person part or if it goes solely online. Because uh, either way, I'll also be able to participate, and that's honestly the most important part. Yeah. Well, can we can we do this live? Can we? Are you free Monday at, uh, I guess it would be 1 p.m. your time, Eastern, to be 10 a.m. Pacific? Can you join us then? 1 p.m. Monday. You're... Monday. I mean, if it was like Thursday or Friday or something, I would be free. That's when the convention's starting, man. Like, the convention like officially starts Wednesday next week, doesn't it? Mm, yeah, Monday, uh, I'll be here. I scheduled myself two 14-hour shifts Monday and Tuesday into the 12th. Uh, so well, I can hey, make the convention. Got- you still got my number. Text me, please, and we'll we'll figure it out. We'll get you on. Yeah, uh, the following week. Monday I'll be free. I can be free. Well, man, I, w- I want to talk to you about what's going on in Florida and what we have to anticipate going into the national convention. Before, like, yeah, before as well. Maybe Wednesday as it's starting would be great to have you on, too. Either way, we'll figure it out, Jean-Luc. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to go ahead and switch over to the patron-only broadcast. If Jean-Luc wants to join us there, if you can send him the link, too, we'll let him get a producer's club membership. And thanks for being only one caller off and for all of his contributions to the Libertarian Party. It would be an honor to have Jean-Luc as uh, part of our producer's club. So please reach out to him and make sure that yeah, happens. Email me. Him at the Freedom Line. All right. With that being said, we're going patron only. Mwah. Peace and love, y'all. Choose happiness and be excellent to each other. <laughs>